Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. Uh, it is the 31st of January. We have a great guest on the show. His name is Musa Al-Garbi. Uh, you might know him from, he writes quite a bit for public uh, outlets, but you know, he is also a professor of sociology at Stony Brook University. We're going to do the full introduction here in a second. Um, we've already recorded the interview. I thought it was really interesting. Uh, we talk about a wide range of things, right? The role of of dissenters to identitarian or identity politics type of mission. What role in which, you know, I think people listening to the show might know, me, Tyler, and Musa are not white. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, when people are sort of dissenting on to that mission, like, and they're not white, right? Like, how is it perceived? How is it a little bit different? Uh, what else did we talk about? We talked about... Uh, uh, I thought the K great... through twelve thing was really interesting too, right? Like the right. incentive structures for teaching, and like the you know he's a right. sociologist, so he's thinking about like what are the incentives and sort of types of people that are driven to sort of K through twelve education, and and why that can skew sort of progressive in a certain way. It's super interesting, right? And so I think for the listeners of this show. In the audience, I think it's going to be interesting. I think there's going to be a lot of stuff you might agree with. I think there's a lot of stuff you might disagree with. But like, you know, like I think that this is a I think that Musa has always been a writer that I've really admired just because he's not afraid to get in. Like he's not afraid to say things and he's not afraid to defend things that I think uh, sometimes we all quietly defend, but we don't really feel comfortable saying right like uh, questions about like whether or not there should be some sort of ideological diversity within these spaces where everyone agrees about one thing, right? Um, yeah. And about almost everything across the board. And questions about censorship and self-censorship, which I think are really important. Do you feel like uh, that you've been self-censoring in any sort of way, like during your career, especially now that you're writing for some of the larger outlets in, in the country? I mean, yes and no. If you are not white. I think there is a certain kind of freedom you have, or at least can have to sort of say what you want. I mean, there's a way in which it's not something I stress about all the time, because I mean, it's like, what are you going to do? You're not going to cancel me and you're not going to fire me. You know, you're not, you know, so like, I don't, I don't know. And and that's not the case for everybody. And I think, you know, um, cancel culture is way overblown. And I think a lot of what, and this is, I think something Musa says too, is that a lot of censorship is really self-censorship. Um, but yeah, no, it's not something I really worry about. I think I have, you know, there aren't really any topics that I care enough about to comment on that I'm not commenting on that I, I, I would if, you know, we lived in a different kind of, you know, media ecosphere or whatever. I do think that there has been a shift that we did reach peak woke, as people say, yeah. and that now it's a lot more free than it used to be. And I think part of the reason, and this is something we get into in the interview, which is that I think part of the reason is that people were clinging on to that because they felt like, because they had jobs in media or they had jobs in sort of these outlets and they felt like they needed to keep those jobs and that there was evidence that some people, not that many, but some people had lost their mm -hmm. jobs for saying stuff or tweeting stuff that went against a type of consensus. However, since then, there are much less jobs, right? And that a lot of the people making these comments like don't give a shit anymore because they don't, they're not get, gonna get fired from these publications that used to exist. But I will say about five years ago that it was something that I thought about constantly in terms of self-censorship. Yeah. And it made me really angry. But that 
type of stuff doesn't cross my mind anymore. I do think part of it is because I do think that the climate around it has changed, right? That, that we don't have the censorious climate. But all those conversations and more with our convers- uh, in our conversation with Musa uh, Oligarchy, please enjoy. Uh, I'm very happy to introduce our guest today. He is Musa Al-Garbi, and he is a sociologist in the School of Communication and Journalism at Stony Brook University and a research fellow at Heterodox Academy. His first book, We Have Never Been Woke, is coming out later this year with Princeton University Press. Welcome to the show. Great to be here. Um, your work is something that uh, is is... I think Tyler and I both have followed for a long time with great interest. Um, And uh, one of the things that we wanted to get sort of kick off the show with to talk about was that you wrote this article and I see it as a theme that goes through your work, your recent work, which is, um, and the title of the article is, if you're worried about censorship, blame adults these days, right? And it was in the Times Higher Education. Uh, We will put a link to it in the show notes. I think everyone should go read it. But if you could, you know, could you just tell me, just give a sense of what your thesis was behind that and why why you were interested in the question that you asked in that? Sure. So a lot of people see this function um, that's happened over the last decade or so in higher ed and other knowledge economy industries. And there's this narrative um, about why that why we're seeing this dysfunction, why we're seeing increase in censorship, why we're seeing increase in breakdowns of normal modes of communication. And the thesis that a lot of us have settled on, uh, because it's convenient for us, is that, oh, it's those damn kid these, kids these days. Kids these days, they don't understand free speech. They're the ones making everything miserable. And if only, if only Gen Z, if only they were just better, right. everything would be so much better than it is or something like this. Is the thesis? Yeah, I, I I find myself sometimes in my moments of great frustration thinking these types of things, and it's very alluring. Uh, I I do ultimately reject it because you know they're kids, and I don't know. It's hard to blame an eighteen year old for anything. Uh, this is something I know just from my years as a high school teacher, where you start to realize how dumb high school students are, you know, and then you just picture them. <laughs> one year ahead and it's not dumb on their own account it's just like they're so young right and they have yeah. they don't really everything they have is just received information like they don't you don't really start to form your own opinions or anything like that and then you just go on and then everyone blames them for being like radicalized in some sort of different way but um you know the question that i had is that if it's not really if it's not the kids that are at fault for this and then, then who is to blame so, you know, one thing that's striking that I think a lot of people forget when they go, when they see some 18 year old today and they're like, wow, they're pretty dumb or whatever like that. Like, um, because, you know, they don't have, it's like when we were that age, we were also pretty stupid. <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. No, and, uh, even, and I think, there's dumber. Like, <laughs> yeah. Oh, so much dumber. <laughs> it was a Maoist yeah. in college. Yeah, oh, way dumber. I think yeah, it's weird. Some, we just didn't have access to the same amount of information, right? And so it was like, I don't know, a lot of my politics were like informed by the Durham, North Carolina News and Observer, for example, right? Or or, or whatever tiny little yeah. scraps of the internet existed in 1996. So something that somebody would <laughs> send me over, like they would be like, I read this newspaper 
and they would recap it for me on AOL Instant Messenger. I'm sure incorrectly, right? From whatever local newspaper. That's how that was like the connectivity of the internet back then. So we we didn't really know anything, you know. Um, so Absolutely. yeah, I don't think they're. I think the kids are probably smarter than we were, but still. Well, and there's this fun. There's these like interesting studies. Say you're a professor, and you're like, I feel like I was I was just a much better student than they were. Um, you know, when I was in school, I was just much better as a student than, than the kids that I have in my classroom today. Uh, the thing about that, that, that there's this problem where that's maybe true, but that doesn't mean the typical student uh, mm -hmm. back when you were a, a, a uh, when you were in school was um, better than the typical student today, because the people who go on to get PhDs and become college professors are not typical students. Um, the right. vast majority of people who uh, graduated from college back when the professors were in college, didn't proceed through college. They got their degree, if that, and checked out to other things. And the same is true today. Um, and so a lot of times professors who are this kind of unusual subset of people who are like really into school and really into ideas, they're not representative or normal then. And kids these days actually don't seem to be um, much different than kids in the past, the reason we think there is, is because, again, we misunderstand ourselves to be more representative of general trends um, than we are. This is a big problem for so many uh, social conversations about identity, inequality, a lot of things like this. But then the question of, okay, so if it's not the kids these days, why are things so weird the last 10 years? And so that, um, that's the top. I, my book is about that a lot. <laughs> That's probably the main thing it's about. Uh, and um, the shorthand version of it, the, the version of it that I present in the Times uh, high red piece, um, is that if you want to see who's driving a lot of the dysfunction, you have to look at the adults these days. So, for instance, um, after 2010, there was this major shift in protests. But if you look at who was taking part in the protests, who was leading the protests, it was actually people who were in their 30s and stuff. When you look at the Occupy Wall Street protests, most people who participated in the Occupy uh, Wall Street protests already had college degrees. People all the way through in their mid to late, a lot of them had postgraduate degrees. Most of them were knowledge economy workers, um, or anyway, a plurality of them were knowledge economy workers. Um, when you look at the other resistance protest movements, um, against Trump, like in, in favor of uh, women or African-Americans and things like this that have happened since 2010. Similarly, studies looking at who takes part in those protests, it's people who are in their 30s and 40s um, are, are the overwhelming majority of people leading and uh, participating in those protests. Um, the same is true. Like if you look at trends that you see that you don't like in the media or in academia, scholarship has gotten really focused on identity issues and um, things like this. Well, who's writing those papers? It's not kids these days. It's people who have PhDs who are sending their stuff to peer-reviewed journals that is looking that it's being reviewed by other colleagues of their age and right. senior reviewers. They're the ones who are determining what gets put in and, and not. Um, so you're talking about people in their like basically late 20s to 30s at the earliest in terms of sending in peer-reviewed research. and um, But more typically people in their you know, 30s to 40s um, that are producing most of this content. Um, media, you know, my research has showed major shifts in the media. Similarly, it wasn't Gen Z that drove most of those shifts in the media. Um, at the time the shifts began, 
the oldest members of Gen Z were 14 years old. <laughs> they were not yeah. the ones driving the coverage in the New York Times. They were not the editors setting the agenda in, in the Washington Post. Um, you know, it, it wasn't kids these days. It was it's adults, mid-career and early career professionals. These struggles among early to mid-career professionals over power and resources and status is how is the, actually the best way to understand what uh, I mean. What do you, what are your students like? I guess one of the things I think about pretty frequently when I read these sort of, you know, Fox News or social media caricatures of purple-haired Gen Z young people. Um, you know, I recognize the purple hair, but I definitely don't recognize the the caricature. You know, I find most of my students or other young people I interact with are pretty reasonable. They're definitely a lot more progressive than I am on a host of issues. Um, but, you know, they'll hear opposing points of view. They'll change their mind in light of new evidence. Um, and I tend to find it's people sort of my generation or, or older that more resemble the Fox News caricature, caricature than the kids. Um, but do you, um, so do you, what are your students like, I guess, is a question I have. You know, I've, I've only taught at two institutions and I can never tell how, uh, you know, how much uh, my experience is generalized. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I've, I've taught at a bunch uh, at University of Arizona, at uh, Columbia, at Stony Brook, at Johns Hopkins. And I'll say there is um, there are some noteworthy differences between students at like uh, Columbia versus students like um, University of Arizona um, mm-hmm. on a number of dimensions. <laughs> But in terms of, uh, but but what you just emphasized about how most students are not like super radical, uh, they don't have their minds, they're not like dogmatic about things, they're still figuring themselves out and figuring out what they think and believe about things. Uh, that 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 seems pretty common throughout. I mean, most of the most of the students that I have are. Um, to the left, they're like left progressive, but they have, but only, but like kind of as a social default, because that's, that's right. um, what they, what they think they should be <laughs> in virtue of, but like when you, when you, um, so for instance, I had this class uh, that I, that I taught and I, uh, we did this, I did this lecture on inequality. And um, like, if you ask students about inequality in the abstract, they'll go, it's bad. Inequality is bad. More equality, good. Okay. But then when you get into the weeds with them um, about like, oh, okay, well, um, why is inequality bad? What forms of inequality are, are more problematic than others? Like uh, if we can put our efforts into addressing this versus that, what would be more important uh, when you have them kind of deal with these trade-offs um, and things like this, when you complicate it, um, you can see that they're not you know, again, they're not dogmatic and it's quite possible to have to, you know, open open people's eyes and have them think about things in different kind of nuance and depth and stuff. One thing that just occurred to me as, uh, you know, just for the listener's sake, which is that I think that one thing we should outline here before we continue in the conversation is that um, like you're not of the mind, at least from what I've read of your work, that everything is fine, right? That actually <laughs> like the way in which uh, universities operate the way in which discourse takes place right now is all fine in that, you know, you, you do not take, and this is what I find so refreshing about your work is that you do not take this sort of like almost nihilistic relativist approach that I think a lot of people do, especially on social media. And especially, I think a lot of progressive colleagues of mine in the media, which they say, actually, nothing is bad. Everything associated with young people is good. And if, as long as I can find one historical corollary for something that 
existed in a previous age, then we can't say that anything <laughs> has changed, right? Like we can, yeah. as long as we can sort of say, well, back in 1976, this newspaper clipping said this, and therefore everything is exactly <laughs> the same. Like you do seem to think that that there is a problem right now with the way in which people talk to one another. So could you just outline that just real quick before we keep going, just so the listeners know? Yeah, absolutely. So my colleagues and I just published a paper in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences that looks at censorship and self-censorship in science, and we find that it's pervasive. Um, the, there's scholars self-censor all the time. They censor each other regularly. Um, you know, uh, what, when you look at polls and surveys of uh, even of students um, compared to young people who are not at, in college and university. Um, People who are students feel significantly less free to express themselves and are less taller uh, and are kind of more skeptical of controversial ideas across the board. Uh, and, you know, that's the opposite of what you would expect, right? You would think a college or a university and college and university students would be more comfortable with controversial views, would be open to a wider range of ideas. It's the, uh, would be freer, more comfortable expressing themselves. It's the opposite. Um, and, um, and then on top of this, there's a problem in a lot of higher ed institutions where the makeup of these institutions is not representative of society as a whole. And I don't just mean this in terms of race or, or, or gender or sexual, you know, the kind of normal demographic things, but like ideologically, politically, religiously, culturally, um, institutions of higher learning kind of border on being a monoculture in a way that creates a, great, a big sociological distance between us and the society that we're supposed to serve, it undermines our research, it undermines trust in our institutions, and I think it's a problem, it's a big problem. And so those are those are issues that I talk about a lot. Um, yeah, it's not to say there's nothing to be concerned about, but, um, but actually like addressing some of those problems that I think are real problems um, requires us to have an accurate understanding of what's actually happening. And what's actually happening isn't that kids these days are, are the ones, for instance, driving the major censorship and self-censorship. In the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences paper that I just talked about, what we show is most of the campaigns um, uh, to get people fired, for instance, to get faculty fired, for instance, for saying something disagreeable are not, are not driven by students. They're driven uh, often by faculty, often by administrators, sometimes by outside um, organizations like Fox News, but in all cases, full-grown adults, professionals um, who are who, with access to grind. Uh, when we look at who drives censorship in science, uh, the proceedings of the national, uh, the PNAS paper um, finds that it's mostly um, scientists themselves who drive, who drive censorship, um, who censor other scientists, who censor themselves, often driven by um, pro-social motives. So they're trying to do good in the world uh, they censor other people because they they think that maybe the other people's ideas are dangerous or importantly wrong and will lead people astray. Uh, maybe they think that the findings are inconvenient or uh, for some cause or a group that they care about. And so they try to suppress them. Um, and this suppression is widespread and it's problematic. Um, so yeah, there's real problems. I have a question for you about that um, research piece you raised, which is a good one. And I guess one thing I find myself thinking about a lot is 
what is the function of peer review, practically speaking? You know, I think, you know, peer review is important. And what I'm about to say is definitely going to piss some, I think, academics off. But there's also a way in which that peer review has this deeply gatekeeping function to sort of just uphold ideological conformity. So a lot of uh, something I hear pretty frequently um, is, you know, a conference will get shut down or a conference panel or, um, you know, some culture war academic flashpoint will happen. And uh, someone will say, well, you know, they were shot down after peer review. It was peer reviewed. And it's like, well, what does that really mean? It's not like peer review occurs in an ideological vacuum. And so there seems like there can be a way in which that, um, you know, in the sciences and outside the sciences, you know, I definitely could not, I don't, I don't work on um, sort of fields related to race. I work on human extinction, but say I did, I could definitely not you know, publish a paper in a lit journal that sort of pushed back against the notion of systemic racism, it wouldn't get past peer review, because people would think that's just, you know, incorrect. Um, And, you know, I guess the question I have is, to what extent do you think um, some of these, the sort of objectivity of science, quote unquote, objectivity, or, um, you know, the sort of gold standard that is peer review can serve as a kind of arm of censorship, even if I would, of course, defend peer review in practice and think it's essential and so on. One of the deep ironies about academia is that uh, a lot of the autonomy that professors enjoy was created in the wake of this of these campaigns to censor and fire professors uh, back in the early 1900s. Um, uh, like uh, at Stanford, for instance, there was this professor who said something that was deemed racist and he was fired by the president of Stanford. And that spawned the like first big national conversation about academic freedom and all of this. And it ultimately culminated in the creation of um, the standards for tenure that we enjoy today that were pushed by the AAUP and um, others. Okay, so one ironic thing that happened was professors successfully pushed pushed a lot of external stakeholders to have less control over things like what we publish and what we say and who gets a job and who doesn't. Um, so we stopped, uh, we successfully reduced the amount of political influence from others. But then the first thing we did after we got that new autonomy was to sort ourselves into cliques and start suppressing uh, start suppressing each other <laughs> directly. And so, um, and there's this problem um, where, oh, sorry, they got lost a lost an earbud. Okay, so there's this problem where a world where higher ed was comprised of people who really did have a bunch of different viewpoints and perspectives, and they're kind of clashing into each other, and everyone's and we're kind of correcting each other's biases and things like this. Um, then a lot of these committee-based decisions about hiring and promotion and peer review and institutional review boards and all of that would work kind of as hoped or intended. But when you have a situation where we have this kind of ideological and cultural monoculture, like monoculture in a lot of institutions, then what happens is committee-based decision-making like peer review and hiring committees and institutional review boards and things like that can actually reinforce and exacerbate existing biases rather than correcting them. Um, and, uh, and we see that a lot. Uh, I will say, one thing that's, um, if, if people are working on something that is uh, colors outside the lines and they're worried that they wouldn't be able to get it published, you should try anyway. <laughs> and I say this as someone who, um, <clears throat> so I'm in sociology, very left field. 
Uh, and I often argue things that are not exactly popular, well, that are challenging for institutionally dominant narratives within the field. Okay. Right. Um, but I haven't actually had that much trouble getting things published. Um, what, 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 what is true is that if you say something that, that kind of challenges the institutionally dominant narrative, you, you're held to a higher standard. Uh, you really have to have your, your shit locked down. Sorry. Um, and, um, and you have to make, you know, you have to make sure your arguments are tight. I actually think that it's good. I think it's actually the real problem is that um, people who advance the ideologically dominant narrative, who tell people what they want to hear, um, who flatter people's existing sensibilities, actually aren't held to as high of a standard as they could or should be. Um, I think that's almost a bigger problem. Uh, and, and so like one of those papers that I published was about how sociologists study Trump and Trump supporters. And I showed like, um, if you want to write a paper saying Trump voters are racist, it's really easy to get that published. And um, so easy, in fact, that you see lots of really high, highly cited prolific studies that have glaring errors. Like you can just look at the chart and go, oh, actually what they argued it's the opposite of that. Yeah, <laughs> like right. you can just look at it, but right. they, but the scholars can't see it, and the peer reviewers can't see it, and the people citing it aren't seeing it, and the often data savvy journalists who report on these studies don't see it. So it's a glaring error that once it's pointed out, you can't not see it. <laughs> but until that point, because we have this kind of systematic, we can have these kind of cascades of error, uh, these cascades of blindness. Um, as a result of the monoculture in our academy. And so I think, you know, um, if we did have more diversity uh, of, uh, in terms of culture and ideology in the academy, I think it would actually increase the, the quality of a lot of other work. There's this great communication scholar, Adam Mastrianini. I might have said that wrong, but he has this great essay called Science as a Strong Link Problem. I didn't mess that up, so you can Google it. The right, essay so argues that if we think that the purpose of, of peer review is to prevent any errors from getting through um, and to make sure that, that, that everything is as accurate and tight as possible, that's maybe the wrong way. That's maybe the wrong... Um, so to prevent weak links from getting through, that's maybe the wrong way to approach peer review. Um, he argues that... The, the truth of the matter is most of the things that we publish at any given time don't really have any impact. They don't change anything over the long term. They're forgotten by history. Ten years from now, no one's reading it or citing it. And if there was an electromagnetic pulse and aliens came down and wiped out the lowest 95% of impact research, none of us would ever know the difference. It would make no difference to anyone's life at all. It's the small share of uh, really... Um, important work that changes, that has the potential to change all of our lives. And that stuff, um, and so uh, he argues, the author argues, that what we want to do is make sure that that really important, game-changing, transformational research can has the ability to get through. <laughs> and so if we're trying to gatekeep and prevent like a, a paper for, with small errors or that's kind of marginally inconvenient narratives from getting through. And in the process of doing this kind of conformity thing, we're actually killing these big, possibly transformational ideas, then we're seeing a net loss, right? We're making ourselves much worse off. 
I, I just remember having this moment when I was locked in my house during the beginning of COVID, right? Um, and the only thing that people could do is rely on the internet to try and get information on what was happening. And that this sort of band of stars came out of like epidemiology stars started circulating on social media. And it took me about, and you know, they all went to the best institutions, like, right. It was like the three epidemiology people at Harvard or Stanford and, uh, or Johns Hopkins or whatever. The reason why they get that prominence is because people associate those institutions with like, you know, being the best of the best and because journalists are lazy and when they need to find an expert to call, they just look at the, directory of that department at Harvard and they just call the person at the top of the list like almost alphabetically sometimes you're like I don't know like what's the difference between these four people they all started the same thing I'll just pick the one whose name starts with C I guess right but the um you know within there I you quickly get the understanding that all these people are just a click of five people within like what at that time was like a pretty small discipline in terms of like public health medicine right like I mean I won't share what my uh, you know, like it's epidemiology. It's, you know, it, it, it is important for sure, but none of us knew what an epidemiologist did before, before that. Right. <laughs> um, and so it was in an interesting question to me. I was like, and then obviously what we were subjected to was like their internal fights that they had been happening, that they had been having for years and years and years and years. Right. Like there was a guy at Stanford who like was wrong about something and then there was the, what felt like the establishment. But what is really the establishment when, when the other guy is at Stanford? Isn't he the establishment too? <laughs> and that it felt like what I was witnessing and that people were glomming onto because they were so desperate for any type of information was essentially just like an like internal fight between five people who had been to 500 conferences together and hated each other, right? <laughs> right? For perhaps personal reasons. And um, that was when I felt like, like I was kind of going crazy because I was like, I don't trust any of these people based on the institution that they went to. Like, I don't like, I know, understand the Academy well enough to understand what the pathways to those institutions are. Right. It is not the best work always. It is in many times social, or if you just agree with a guy who runs a department and you write something very similar that flatters his or her, you know, sensibilities, then they might hire you. Right. Like, and if you say that that person is full of shit, then they perhaps understandably would say, yeah, maybe you shouldn't work here. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like if all you can do is take shots at me, I don't, I don't need you in this department. I actually started to understand, even though I didn't subscribe to this, why people were like, all these people are full of shit. I'm going to go take ivermectin or something like that. Right. Like it was, yeah, it was because the sources of knowledge were so tightly guarded and we were being insisted so strongly that they were right about everything that sometimes you're like, but what if they're wrong, you know, like, and I'm locked in my house and my kid is being, you know, like subjected to this lockdown um, and people keep dying, even though uh, they say social distancing is working. Like I actually understood why the establishment theories would not hold up in that instance. And now of course we are in the aftermath of all of that. Right. And we just have full chaos in terms of any type of thing. Nobody trusts any type of expert thing anymore. I wrote an article for the guardian called, uh, why people, uh, it's called something like why, why, why people are skeptical of the COVID-19 vaccine or something like that. Um, and it, t it touches on some similar, some similar points to that. I think, um, one of the things that's really interesting and it relates to the, to that research paper I, I published recently too, is, um, 
Nate Silver had had this article that he ran on his Substack recently called uh, "Journalists Should Should Be Skeptical of All Their Sources, Including Scientists" or something like this. And what what he sh what he was reporting on in that piece was this Freedom of Information Act request um, for a, so basically there were some scientists who published this big paper about the origins of COVID-19 that said, we've proved decisively that the lab leak hypothesis is bunk, it's impossible, um, uh, et cetera. Okay, so there was a Freedom of Information Act request that was um, carried out for the scientists who published this paper. And it turns out in their own emails with one another, they believed that the lab leak hypothesis was actually a very plausible thing um, and uh, in, in fact, some of them um, in some of the emails think it's maybe more likely than not to have been leaked from a lab, but they thought that by saying it was leaked from a lab or by um, allowing the lab leak hypothesis to circulate, it was giving ammunition for Trump and his xenophobic campaigns against China and things like this. And so they decided um, to publish a paper uh, arguing that the thing that they themselves personally believed might actually be true could not possibly be true. And again, like you can see their email smoking gun of them kind of uh, misrepresenting their own understanding of the world to the public for political reasons. Um, and uh, this is the kind of thing, the sense that people have that things like that might be happening is the kind of thing that really um, that, that people's, um, that scientists kind of political and moral agendas might be uh, undermining the ways that they talk about issues is the source of a lot of mistrust of science. And one of the things that's interesting um, actually is that when you look at trust, trust in science, science writ large, hasn't changed much actually. What's, what's changed is trust in scientists. So the people who present themselves as spokespeople of what the science says. Um, trust in scientists has significantly declined. And um, one of the things that's really striking is that the declines were actually started just before COVID-19. And why they started, um, what really started the, the decline, uh, there's this great paper by uh, a political scientist, Matt Moda, who, who, who for one points out this distinction between science and scientists and how the science, trust in science hasn't changed much. Trust in scientists has changed a lot. And what he shows is what, when you look at what caused the decline of trust in scientists, the rapid precipitous decline of trust in scientists, it was actually, it seemed to have been the march for science. So when a lot of scientists uh, after Trump was elected started marching saying, declaring themselves as political partisans, as scientists, we're opposed to Trump, we support the, the Democrats, whatever, um, that led a lot of the public to discount, um, to start distrusting scientists a lot more. And um, unfortunately, scientists started engaging in this political behavior and undermining public trust in them right before the onset of a major global pandemic where trust in science and where trust in scientists actually became super important and they didn't have the credibility they needed at that time. Um, and so uh, I think the COVID-19 um, pandemic is actually a great illustration in many respects of how um, these decisions that scholars and journalists and other stakeholders make sometimes to, to kind of promote their own kind of pet 
political and moral projects in the professional sphere through their professional channels, attaching their professional titles to these things they're doing, often have like big consequences, not just for them and not just for their own professions in terms of people trying to defund them or not trust them, but sometimes big consequences for society writ large. I mean, if the work knowledge economy professionals do is important, um, and I happen to think it is, uh, then it's really important that we conduct ourselves in a way that you know befits the station that we're trying to occupy. You know, as somebody, um, I'm not a scientist, I'm, my PhD is in literature, but I'm in an environmental studies department. And, you know, I'm someone who's broadly concerned about environmental stuff. I guess one of the things I think about a lot to kind of get back to Jay's point where, you know, Jay was saying, you can kind of understand why a certain kind of person would lose some faith in the expert class, both because they often seem to be wrong, but also because of the, the politics point. I mean, um, you know, I have an acquaintance who worked for the CDC during COVID and um, early on when COVID was starting, the message was, you know, we don't need to wear masks at this time, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I talked to that person on the phone. They were like, definitely fucking wear a mask. Like we, we, <laughs> masks definitely work. Like don't. And he was like, they're saying that because we're worried about a mask shortage. But he's like, yeah. if you have masks, wear a fucking mask, you know? Um, and so, and then you point out, you know, the March for Science and the sort of politicalization. I guess my question is, you know, something I struggle with uh, because I tend to be like Jay, not quite a free speech absolutist, but definitely on that track. Um, so I think faculty should be able to say whatever they want. And yet, on the other hand, I kind of also don't want the scientists being political, you know, like I would prefer they kind of kept their, you know, fingers out of politics. And the, one of the reasons I think that is because, you know, when um, universities feel like hotbeds of politics uh, and when they feel really asymmetrically political skewed toward, you know, one side of the spectrum, it doesn't feel to me either that unreasonable or that shocking that there's a group of people who have some suspicion about what scientists, if we'll, if we'll distinguish that from science, what scientists employed at those places have to say, right? Um, and like I said, as someone in environmental studies department who thinks about climate change denialism quite a lot, um, even as I absolutely don't condone it, obviously, I, there's a way in which it's also not that surprising given university politics. And so I don't know, I guess what I'm trying to get at is that there seems to me to be a kind of tension between on the one hand, I want to say, faculty, including faculty in the sciences, absolutely need free speech um, and should be able to say whatever they want. And then on the other hand, I also do think the politicalization of universities, including, you know, the sciences doesn't seem to be great for public trust in science. And so, um, you know, I guess it, I, I'm just curious if you have any thoughts about that or navigating absolutely. that tension because they seem across purposes. Well, I think, uh, you know, honestly, I think the whole, the, one of the ways that this whole conversation goes awry consistently is there used to be this idea of um, a kind of symmetry. Uh, so you'd have rights, but they would come with obligations. You have uh, freedoms, but that comes with responsibilities. You had, um, uh, you know, et cetera. Uh, and so we, we like talking about the freedoms and the rights and the uh, independence aspect of it, but not the duties and responsibilities side of it. But the thing is, like, like you need both of those in order to, to maintain the freedom thing. You need to do the responsibility thing. And when you don't, um, people come after the, the autonomy bit. Um, and uh, and so this is the point. Is like I, I agree um, that, that scholars... Um, need to be able to pursue ideas uh, 
wherever they lead, they need to call the, they need to be able to speak the truth as they understand it. Um, it's pernicious um, when they don't, uh, like it, it's, it's potentially harmful for society. It undermines, um, can create all sorts of social harms. But uh, at the same time, my most kind of normy right-wing view, if you wanted to, <laughs> if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna put myself, if I'm gonna say one view that I think of mine um, seems uh, right aligned, it's that, um, and a lot of these debates about K-12 schools and higher ed, um, I think it is the case that teachers, professors, uh, and, and K-12 teachers, it's actually incumbent on them to give a shit, sorry, um, what the constituents they're serving think and feel about different issues. If you're a taxpayer-funded person, if you're a public servant, like a K-12 instructor or a professor at a land-grant university, you're a public servant, um, and it actually is incumbent on you to care um, what your constituents think about different issues, what their priorities are, and in some way to reflect or speak to those. This kind of disdain um, that a lot of academics have towards the people who, for one, pay their paychecks, and um, two, are the people that they're supposed to serve. The whole point of your job is to help serve the public. Um, and so if you have just disdain towards the public, maybe this isn't the job for you. There are college, there are some college professors and there are some K-12 teachers. I don't think it's all of them. I don't even think it's most of them, but there are certainly some who who seem to think that the, the classroom is the place for their weird self-actualization projects or their niche moral or political projects. I think that does a disservice to students. I think it does a disservice to the institutions that they're part of. Um, and, um, and again, I, what they should, you know, I would urge them to consider not just the freedoms that they have in the classroom, but the responsibilities that they have in virtue of being a public servant, um, in virtue of like the trust that was extended to them, uh, in order to give them this autonomy, people are turning their children over to you. <laughs> They're allowing you to um, for all day, the, what bigger investment of trust could there be? And to reward that trust. Uh, one thing that occurred to me um, that, that Jay mentioned about how it doesn't take a, how there's not a lot of, like, it's probably not most, most kids or probably even most um, professionals who have these kind of illiberal tendencies. Um, one of the things that's just really important to understand about how the social dynamics of a lot of this stuff play out is that it doesn't necessarily need to be a majority or anywhere near a majority to create a really censorous environment. Right, so, I agree um, with that, yeah. Yeah, some people showed you can have a minority of as little as like 5%. If, if you have 5% of, of, uh, of a population that's highly organized and really intolerant of dissent, and they're surrounded by a lot of other people who are more wishy-washy or maybe even sympathetic, not fully on board, but don't want to be seen as opposed either, um, uh, then um, though that, that share of 5% can completely dominate an institution, can set the institutionally dominant narratives, can set the institutionally dominant politics, uh, policies, even if they are not representative of what the most people in the institution um, believe. And one of the things that's striking is when you see um, when it is that way, 
when you have a small minority of people who are dominating an institution and are not representative of most people in that institution, you can sometimes have cases where when you just start having some of the normie kind of people uh, speak up more um, instead of engaging in censorship or preference falsification, then um, these views and positions and policies that everyone's that everyone seem to share can suddenly just collapse precipitously um, uh, because they've never had strong support to begin with. Um, and so, um, yeah, that's just one, one thing to be mindful of and so, that I think sometimes people lose, especially I think right-wingers lose track of this point sometimes is that um, just because an institution just because a certain narrative or type of behavior is prominent or or even institutionally dominant doesn't mean that it's what all professors or all kids these days or even most of them think or feel. And also, a lot of times I think the representation of it is misaligned with the type of uh, leadership within the bureaucracy that runs some of these institutions, right? And so... I will tell you that, you know, living here in the most liberal, I don't think it actually is, but allegedly the most liberal city in America, um, where we have like a reparations task force, for example, on our, like at our school board, um, we have every, we get an email once a week from the superintendent, which is always something about identity, right? Uh, almost without fail. And where, uh, you know, like it's, it's about what you would think it would be, right? That. Almost no teachers, individual teachers that I've met within the school system are anything that you would expect that anyone would classify other than normie. Like they're very, you know, they, 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 they don't, they're not like my kid has had few teachers now. I just know other teachers just because I used to be a teacher as well. We also live close to a school. So like, you know, like just run into people and just in a normal social life, you meet people who are teachers. If you're like a writer or something like that, you tend to meet other people who are part of what you call like the knowledge production academy or industry. And some of those are teachers. So I've met a lot of, and I have not met, I've maybe one, I've met one teacher who I think you know, like a, somebody who is on the right or something like that would point to and be like, you believe all these things. Everybody else is pretty ambivalent about it. Now, that doesn't mean that they disagree with the progressive um, ideations or the progressive ideology that that is expressed. I think they believe in equity. I think they, you know, here we don't do much tracking in elementary school, for example. I think that personally, it's a good thing, right? Like, I don't think that kids need to be separated by ability until they're in like fifth, sixth grade. I think that's probably an appropriate time, but like, like it's not that. And I also understand that the reason why I feel that way is because I'm an extremely comfortable person. And I think my kids are probably going to be fine. Right. And like, that's why it doesn't matter to me. If I was much more precarious, I would care much more deeply about like where my kids ranked. Um, but what is interesting to me is that if you just read the emails from the superintendent of the school you would think everyone's crazy you know and so like it literally can just be like three high-ranking bureaucrats and what i find so interesting about this moment right now and i think it's you know what i find so interesting about your work because what you do is you sort of explain why these things have happened right these things that we can kind of witness um is that these the people who espouse this type of ideology constantly, right, are very good at getting into higher ed and education positions within that 
within those groups themselves. They are not actually that great at getting into media, for example. I mean, look at the editors and chiefs of like the major papers right now. Like none of them are anyone that you would consider to be overly woke or anything like that, right? Like nobody, like nobody. So it really is just educational institutions. Like, why do you think that is? Why, why is it that uh, so much of what you would pe- people call uh, sort of caught up in what you would call the great awakening, right? Which is, I don't know, I, like, I sometimes I get yeah. a little squeamish about that term, but like we can just use it here. It's fine because I think we, it describes the thing that we both think existed, right? Um, yeah. Why are they so I'll, good I'll at getting it. in these positions? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, on teachers, I think to the extent that bias is there, um, the the bias that I've observed of my kids in school is usually kind of um, unintentional uh, stuff. It's not people like aggressively pushing their, it's just like, if it's the air that you, if it's the water that you swim in, it's like invisible to you. So for instance, my, my son was assigned um, uh, to write an essay about why Black Lives Matter was good. So, um, so there's a lot there, right? There's, there's um, uh, an emphasis. Um, so the conclusion of the essay is a foregone thing. It's good. Um, and the goal of the students is just to come to arrive at the, at the position that the uh, That's that the way more intense are. than anything I've seen, but yeah, yeah, keep going. Or, or my son, uh, or, or alternatively, um, Oh, and they were they were tasked to read Ibram X. Kendi's stamped, and uh, there were like glaring errors in the stamped for kids that I read immediately. Like, so I think honestly, really, I think um, some of these problems could be fixed by paying people more. So if you're um, like, for instance, take peer review, because peer review is something that you don't usually get credit for because it's anonymous, so you can't put it on your CV. You don't get compensation for it. Um, People are on tenure clocks. They have, you know, they have a lot of projects they're balancing. They have classes to prepare for. So if you, if 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 it's a situation where um, you actually have to pay kind of a cost in some way to do this service work, then the people who are going to be attracted to that service work are people who are really passionate about gatekeeping. <laughs> and right, that's not right. necessarily what you want. Totally. Um, and in a similar way, uh, I think. Um, you know, because in, in some places, in a lot of the country, uh, not in all of the country, in, in Manhattan, where my where my son was going to public school in, in, in the Upper West Side of Manhattan, the teachers made something like 80000 a year at this uh, school. So they were making more than I did, a very respectable, very livable salary. <laughs> um, yeah. And it was funny, too, because the parents would, would do collections to raise money and give the teachers these gifts and stuff. And we did this, too, to... to comply with the norms, but we were buying these things for someone who was at the time making significantly more money than I was making. (laughs) But, but the point is, um, at a lot of institutions, um, at a lot of places nationwide though, teachers, K-12 teachers, especially don't make a lot of money. Um, and, uh, so who, so the people who end up gravitating towards that, towards those roles are not going to be people who are just interested in having a good career, um, who are interested in making money, who are interested in what you're gonna, who are interested in just doing their job. It's people who who have a passion for shaping young minds. People who have a passion for shaping future generations are gonna be the kind of people who are drawn to that profession. 
it seems to be that there's, I mean, not seems to me, there is obviously a disproportionate focus in the media on what happens at the Ivy League. Um, and that's always been the case. I mean, I think as of late, a lot of the current installation of the campus war stems from October 7th, and which stems in particular from the fact that a handful of professors that almost exclusively Ivy League universities were saying some things that were more on the sort of outrageous spectrum. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it seems to me to be the case that the politics at um, public institutions, smaller schools, schools that are less prestigious, um, seem less insane. And I guess one of my sort of pet theories about it is, you know, at a lot of these really elite institutions, the um, problems, the real sort of problems stemming from racial inequality, for example, or any of these issues that we associate with quote unquote wokeness um, stem from their financial model, right? Where these are extremely expensive institutions that are massively over leveraged because of real estate holdings and development and everything else. Um, and that the problems that exist are problems that can't be fixed because they're they're literally the financial model, right? So um, you can't change tuition, really. Um, you can't change, you know, the way these institutions function. And so it leads instead to a focus on sort of vibes policing and rhetoric, right? Like if we can't actually fix tuition, we can talk about all this other sort of pseudo-radical babble. Um, and so, you know, I guess one of the questions I have is, is do you think um, this problem is, you know, the reason things seem so different at a place like Columbia versus a place like Arizona State. Do you think it's about the financial model? Do you think it's about the politic, political sensibilities of the incoming students? Do you think it's a regional thing? Do you think it's a cocktail of all of that? I mean, so one of the things that's interesting is that um, people who graduate college, especially people who graduate college at elite schools, often aspire to be to work in knowledge economy fields like consulting or, or things like this. Um, and these fields from the outset have been kind of justified their social position, justified the autonomy that they enjoy, justified their pay by appeals to like altruism. So we serve the greater good rather than ourselves, uh, doctors, psychologists, journalists, you name it, right? We right. define ourselves in terms of, okay. Um, but the problem is uh, that a lot of these institutions are also highly parochial. So you need, you, you know, you, to get into Harvard or to get a job as a as a consultant or a journalist or something like that. The 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 set of requirements that they that they set up, advanced degrees, degrees from elite schools, things like this, basically guarantee that. Um, only a small, by design, I mean, not accidentally, <laughs> that is small and highly, um, okay. So there's this, there's this tension where um, a lot of these institutions benefit from and perpetuate various forms of social exclusion and inequality, but a lot of the people who occupy them sincerely are committed to egalitarianism um, and, or, or like broadly speaking, left, left aligned. Um, and so they wanna be egalitarians and social climbers, um, <laughs> and they, they they passionately want both of these things. Um, and uh, although, if they have to choose the second one, the social climber thing is <laughs> always <laughs> is more, more important, important. Always but, more important. Yeah. But they passionately believe in both of these things, and the kind of tension that they feel, and that the institutions feel, um, and that different stakeholders is is like what gives rise to some of this um, uh, uh, weird performative stuff. Um, is that they really are committed to uh, various, in, in principle, to various forms of um, inequal uh, of equality and in inclusion, all of this kind of stuff. They really do 
want those things, just not at any cost to themselves, right? <laughs> not in any way that interferes with their own goals in life and vision and their children reproducing their class position and things like that. So if there's any way we can make that stuff happen without paying any cost myself, then that is what, <laughs> that is what. Um, and so that, that tension um, that on some level, uh, this, so there's all this research that when people feel that kind of tension, when they feel that kind of, that they might be hypocrites or that they might have, they, that, that they might be responsible for social problems that they care passionately about, one of the ways, one of the important ways that we try to make ourselves feel like good people again, that we kind of assure ourselves that we're on the right side of social struggles and things like this, is to basically expropriate blame to other people, especially people who are sociologically distant from ourselves, people who are not like us. Um, and so for instance, if you, um, what the common narrative is in higher ed and journalism and other, is that for almost any problem in America, if you want to know why things are shitty, it's those damn Republicans, especially those MAGA psychos, right? But like, if you look at who's actually perpetuating a lot of these problems, if you look at who's actually benefiting from a lot of the inequalities that people conspicuously condemn, it's actually people like us. It's not the people in flyover country who vote for Trump, who are the most, who are benefiting the most from a lot of these problems and who, who are exercising control over a lot of these institutions. Um, and, uh, but um, so, so you see this blame expropriation. And that's also what you see with the kids these days thing, right? Like, who are the people making, like, say someone gets, say a bunch of kids these days get on Twitter and they type mean things about a professor. Okay, there's actually no way that tweets translate directly into anyone losing their job. The only way that jobs get lost is when some institutional stakeholder, like a university president, or a trustee or some administrator who's in charge who otherwise is in charge of someone's job decides okay i'm going to fire you um and the people who do the firing the people who are the ones who have been responsible for actually firing people for politically based reasons the people who are the actual decision makers have consistently tried to elide responsibility for their own actions by saying, oh, kids these days, have you seen Twitter? Like no one is forcing those people to do anything. It's a choice that they're making when they can make an alternative choice. Um, and- uh, Well, that, that goes to the question of sacrifice and the question of, of what people actually want to do or willing to do, right? Because like I always, I think that what you are talking about right now is one of the things that I think about all the time, honestly, it's what preoccupies my mind the most, which is this question of, I think it's very easy to point out liberal hypocrisy, especially within elite institutions. It's something I've done myself to the point where I feel somewhat sickened by how much I do it, right? But it's not hard. Like, you know, like I wrote about affirmative action a lot and I said that, uh, what is the project of trying to reform Harvard in a way in which we gloss over all the ways in which Harvard itself is a driver of inequality, you know, like one of the most famous and intense drivers of inequality, although not, you know, like not that enough people go to Harvard to, to have it be that influential. But you look at all the people who are in power and large positions of power, of course, it has an influence, right? And that the idea that 
we would never look at class. We would only look at race, right? So that the, the people who do succeed at places like Harvard are people who are exactly like Claudine Gay, where they went to Phillips Exeter, right? What gets produced out of all of that is a type of hyper narcissistic ideology in which ideas are just ideas, right? And they're enforced with a very hard line, but that the question of what those ideas actually look like in the world is very rarely examined. And actually it's just a pointing out of inequalities almost by like reflex. There's never a question of like, who cares, right? But it, the, 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 the end is always just that like this storied institution should not change. It should, or it should, it should always exist. The, the, the sort of status that it confers on people should still exist. The inequality or whatever that it, the ideology that it puts out in the world should still exist. It should just be more, you know, it should have more people who look like me, right? Like that's basically the end result of a lot of this type of hyper woke elite, um, well, academic driven yeah. stuff. But the question that I always have in the end of it is like, all right, well, what's the alternative to that, right? Like what is the, what is the way in which if we're so locked into that type of thinking, is it smarter to just try and reform it with inside, right? Like to try and say, hey, maybe these kids at these schools should think about class a little bit more, right? Like, is that possible? Can we talk about class a bit more? But I don't know. I, I, I find myself sometimes just thinking that it's almost impossible, right? And that, um, that, that there are no clear alternatives that are out there that, that, Basically, we have this vision and then we have everything else is classified into the anti that position. Right. And so I find myself crazy sometimes. I went to this. I, I talked about this on this podcast, but I went to this uh, um, conference in uh, Martha's Vineyard. Right. And it was uh, Henry Louis Gates. It was uh, Randall Kennedy, me, John McWhorter and Melissa Murray, who is the very distinguished law professor at NYU and used to be actually the dean of Berkeley Law School. And of all those people, I was by far the least distinguished. But they brought me on as like the conservative voice because of what I had written about affirmative action. And I just like, it made me kind of crazy because I was like, actually, I am far to the left of every single person on this panel, like <laughs> by every single measure, except this one opposition that I have to the way in which race is talked about without class in this type of institution, right? And it made me think not to be narcissistic about it, that it's just about like how people think about me, right? But it made me think that like basically people like me, you or Tyler don't really have a home right now, right? Like you you have to just, we just have to be seen as anti-woke. That's it, right? Like, the, like we're woke or we're anti-woke, that's a dichotomy. And it is, there's more pressure on it because the three of us are not white. You know, if we were white, I think it would be different, but we're not white. So we either have to be like woke with all the POCs or we have to be anti-woke. Right. I don't know. Do you feel that in any sort of way? It's something Tyler and I talk about quite a bit. Yeah. I mean, I was talking about this with uh, Fadi Hamid and uh, Amna Khalid before, uh, who are also kind of noted dissenters on a lot right. of this stuff. Um, and, uh, and our, you know, I think in some ways, um, as a person who is easy, uh, because I'm a, a black Muslim who was targeted by Fox News, famously, um, I think that gives me uh, more freedom than other people would experience. And I, and I feel actually a sense of obligation then to say things that other people feel less able to say. 
Um, so for instance, uh, the, the paper that I, I published pointing out errors in pointing out this kind of consistent bias and how social researchers and journalists discuss Trump and Trump supporters. If I had published that same article as a white, per, as a white person, as a noted evangelical Christian, as a, um, as a, uh, especially if I, or especially if I was also like actually right of center <laughs> or perceived right, that way, right, right, um, right. then, then it would have been received in a totally different way. It would have been written off immediately as like, oh, okay, this is just, you know, a privileged person trying to defend their privilege or whatever, insert kind of villainizing narratives here. And it's a little bit harder to impugn my motives, um, not to say that people haven't tried. Most recently, I had a, um, I, there was this change at the, in the editorial board at this journal where I'm an editorial board member. And uh, some people who were upset about this transition took to Twitter and tried to paint me as some kind of reactionary right winger. Um, Tyler was uh, privy to part of that conversation. And um, it was ironic for a number of reasons, not the least because the week before all of this stuff played out, I had published two, I had published a um, uh, damning documentation of like war crimes in Gaza by the IDF. And um, before that, uh, and then after that, a, um, a, a similarly just devastating critique of a lot of the right-wing narratives about how colleges and universities are dominated by left-wing anti-Semites or whatever, right? So, right, you know, right, right. typical right-wing reactionary stuff, but I haven't faced that too much. Um, I haven't really gotten a lot of that. If I was a white person, I would be getting it all the time. Um, and, and, uh, and so because I have more flexibility, um, I, I actually feel an obligation to, uh, but I, at the same time, I try to avoid that kind of anti-woke posturing in part, um, and in fact, I, I usually try to refrain from even talking about my own political preferences or, or views or the candidates I support or anything like that, in part because um, I worry that in virtue of putting myself on the record as belonging in Xbox or um, in virtue of thinking of myself as a partisan in this struggle or, or another, like, or, or especially presenting myself as a partisan in this struggle or another, it would like undermine my flexibility. Tyler, what about you? You know, like, I think you're in a similar boat right now where, you know, I think Musa and I maybe have been in the whatever, very, very semi-public sphere a little bit longer than you, but you know, like yeah, you no. have, it's a similar question, which I think that if, there was a similar panel assembled, right? Um, and it was attached to a very prestigious university, right? The thing that I did was for the was for Harvard, and um, and and it was on Martha's Vineyard. So how can you get more elite than that, right? Um, that you would be brought in as an anti woke voice, right? That you would not, you would be on the other side of. They literally had us on the, me and John McWhorter on the <laughs> other side of the. <laughs> So like there's a long table and it was like me and John sitting next to each other um, that you would be sitting next to John. I mean, one of the things I think about a lot is like if you particularly I think there's something about like if you are um, someone who's like black and anti-woke, you are immediately like 
if you are a black sort of anti-woke public figure, you're not like categorized into things you think, but rather like you're compared to other people like online all the time. People are like, oh, he's a John McWhorter or he's a like he's a this or he, or he, a Candace Owens, uh, despite like really profound political differences I, I have with those kinds of people, you know, um, and it is, I think, really hard. If you are on the quote unquote anti-woke side of the aisle, I think it's really hard for anyone to like hear the rest of your politics. You know, Um, one of my acquaintances was talking to a kind of um, New York media elite person that works at a publishing house or institution. Um, And they were like, you know, they referred to me as they're like, oh, I like this thing he wrote. You know, it's a shame that he's a conservative. And this person uh, was like, Tyler's a Marxist. Like, why, what made you think that he's a conservative? And they're just like, I don't, I mean, I don't, they couldn't like really articulate what it was other than the fact that like I have, I, I'm not like enthused about identity politics. Um, so it's something I think about a lot, but I just, I think it's really, um, you know, Musa, you, you said earlier about, um, you know, the way in which there can be like a bad study or bad data or like a graph that's just wrong and it's so obvious, but everyone can see it. And like just not metabolize that information. I kind of feel that way very frequently that, you know, no matter how much you are clear, I am sort of the opposite of you, Musa, where I'm pretty clear about, you know, I talk about Marx and sort of Marxist line figures and things I write, and I'm pretty clear about where my politics are. Um, but it, I find it's really difficult to get people to like hear and associate you with um, sort of the left if you have any sort of critique of identitarianism at all. So yeah, I, I don't know. It seems like either approach, whether you're politics forward or sort of uh, try to put it in the background, it, the result seems to be the same, at least from my point of view. I'll say, I think honestly, um, as a as black dissenters almost, it's, um, it's almost more, th- I think part of the reason people respond, especially to black, is because it's more, most threatening, right? Like, so there's, um, uh, because a lot of, people who seek to legitimize their own power claims or their own political narratives by serving, um, by presenting themselves as representatives or advocates for marginalized and disadvantaged people. Um, Like the black experience is kind of unique in America and holds kind of a unique place in a lot of discussions about, um, and so I think black people who advance in inappropriate, you know, inappropriate, (laughs) unconventional, politically inconvenient narratives, whatever, are like especially um, viewed as problematic uh, for for a certain subset of people who like to make claims on behalf of the marginalized and disadvantaged. One strategy that I try to do is uh, to navigate this is I try to kind of subvert people's expectations a lot. So, um, so, so for instance, take the article I recently published in Slow Boring on anti-Semitism in America. Um, if you're woke or anti-woke or anything in between, that's a it's it's a weird read for you, right? Like so on the one hand, I I kind of push back against the idea that left-leaning people are indoctrinating uh, uh, kids these days into hating Israel or kids these days are especially anti-Semitic and, and all of that. But then I turn and talk about how part of the reason people misunderstand anti-Semitism is because they don't talk so like no matter where you are in the kind of political cultural thing, there's going to be something that's going to be difficult for you to digest in that essay. And that's, that's, I try to make it that way. Um, So that um, uh, on purpose, like I go out of my way to make it so that uh, to try to tell people, I guess my goal for writing a lot of times is to try to tell audiences things I think they need to hear, but don't want to hear. 
Um, and, uh, and I try to make sure that um, I'm saying things that different stakeholders need to hear and don't want to hear in the same in the same essay, right? Let's, let's right, yeah. Actually, that one's an interesting. Just for the listeners who have not read the essay, we'll put a link to it in the show notes. But it's a very, you know, it's one that, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but it's an argument, basically, try or not an argument. It is a look into how prevalent is anti-Semitism on campuses. And then a real examination, which I found totally fascinating into where some of the conflations between criticism of Israel and uh, and anti-Semitism took place. And then also a really, really interesting look into how do young people actually feel and how do educated people who are sort of the crux of a lot of these accusations that, oh, it's the young elite woke kids who, are, who have become anti-Semitic. How do they actually feel about Israel itself, right? Not just not just Jewish people. And I think that the subverting of expectation within that article itself is why it was really effective. And I will just tell you, Musa, that that article was sent to me by people across the political spectrum, right? And part of it was because you mentioned my book in it, but you know, it was (laughs) like, there was a lot of, there was a lot of, that's why they sent it to me. But I did not find one person who didn't, was not convinced by it. And I'll say this was, these are people who, some of them are very sensitive about um, anti-Zionist stances, right? I would say that that would be a lot of my friends uh, just in my personal life feel that way, right? But they were convinced by this argument, right? Um, and that they were almost heartened by it because they felt like the thing that they were really worried about might be not as real as they had sort of suspected or being told it was. And then people on the left, I think, really appreciate that you were able to sort of, uh, in a historical sense, chart where these conflations took place and to argue against those types of conflations, right? I think one of the things that's important about being a public dissenter too is that it it creates social permission for other people who... Uh, so, so for instance, there's this great um, example at uh, Reed College where a bunch of students kept... Uh, there was this teacher uh, who was teaching one of the kind of core classes and she was unable to teach the class because these protesters kept crashing the class and complaining... Um, because I think the syllabus had not enough non-whites or something. So they had some kind of social justice protest that they were, they were crashing the class, people who were not students of the class, and preventing the teacher from teaching. And this went on for a, a number of classes, for a lot of the semester. And then eventually, though, um, what happened was, uh, it was a racial justice protest. It was that a couple of students who, um, I think they were Indian American, uh, and it's important that they were not white. Um, because if they had been white students, um, it maybe would have played out differently. So these non-white students stood up and said, hey, knock it off. Don't come here anymore. This is bullshit. And then a lot of the other students who had been sitting on their hands quietly the whole semester also said, yeah, get out of here. Knock it off. Don't come back. And they spoke up too. And they shut it down. The people, the processors didn't come back. The, the, The teacher was. And so there were all of these people who were dissatisfied, but no one felt comfortable saying it until they had someone else uh, who had who had kind of moral credibility in this case in virtue of their race or ethnicity to challenge it. Um, if, if it had been a white student who had stood up first and said, hey, knock it off, fellas, like they would have been like, you're racist. <laughs> like, of course like you would it. have a problem with it. It's because... <laughs> I like the, the fellas you added in there. <laughs> it's, uh, it's too much Dave Chappelle. But um, <laughs> his, his like white voice impression kills me every time. Um, but uh, yeah, if 
But so if it had been a white student who stood up, they probably would have been heckled and villainized and they would have sat down and none of the other students would have joined them. But because you had a non-white student who was willing to stand up first and voice the thing that everyone was thinking, everyone else um, was willing to join them in that protest and shut it down. Um, and so I think um, having people who are, say, um, queer uh, challenge some prevailing narratives about gender and sexuality, or having people who are uh, non-white challenge some of the views on race, things like this, it creates social permission for other people who disagree, but don't feel comfortable publicly disagreeing to do that more. And that can help break some of these um, situations you see where you have this kind of institutional dominance or preference falsification um, for a view that's not representative of what most people in the institution or society actually think and feel. Um, and so, um, yeah, so I think it can be useful. I mean, I think you, you can do a lot of social good sometimes just by being that voice who's willing to say it first. It seems to me that so much discourse on the left is is kind of nihilistic and has abdicated the idea that persuasion is possible at all, you know? And a thing I notice on the right is that the right is really fighting for the quote unquote reasonable center. Um, and they often make inroads. I mean, I'm just thinking about the reputation of higher education completely tanking over the last few years. And that's in large part because of conservative voices in the media and people like Chris Rufo that have made a case that some people have found compelling that there's something wrong here. And even if I think that's totally the wrong case, it clearly illustrates that there's there's a center of people who are up for grabs and that can be persuaded. Um, and it really seems to me that people on the left very frequently um, are very snide about the idea of persuasion and they're like politics isn't about persuasion. It's not about changing minds. And it's like, well, I understand what you mean by that. But at the same time, surely it's a little bit about persuasion and changing minds, you know, and it just seems to me really important um, that there are people who are on the left that are willing to say when something that something's that we all know is crazy is crazy, you know, and I, I do think um, the way you put it about giving social permission seems really important. And I think there is, as you also put it, a kind of responsibility because, you know, um, these are certainly things, I think we all say things that there's probably some white left weaning people that certainly think, but it would be, uh, they'd be heard very differently, right? Than, than I think um, somebody who's of color is able to be heard. And it just, you know, I, I do think there is a kind of political nihilism that defines a certain quadrant of the left. And I think both um, giving other people permission to, uh, you know, be honest, but also to, you know, to try to fight for those people in the center and to pull them leftward seems really, I don't know if it works at all, but it certainly is the case that just shrieking to an echo chamber doesn't work. And it <laughs> seems to be working for conservatives. So I don't know. Yeah, the last question I wanted to ask you, Mr. and we'll let you go because it's been a while here. But the question that I had was, um, you know, this idea you write about a lot about sort of expression of ideological diversity and these ideas that like um, certain opinions are cut out, not everyone expresses themselves, and that there's self censorship, right? And one of the things I think about quite a bit is how. The internet has changed the way in which everybody thinks about it, about everything, because it took what used to be received information and allows people to impl implement themselves into it, right? Like you can take a tweet and you can give your opinion. 
or in the early wet days, even in built bulletin boards, right? It democratizes things into the point where like you can have your response go to the top in some sort of way, right? Which sort of fuels a type of narcissism. Um, and that you take positions on things that you never would have taken a position on before and that you need to have an opinion about every single thing. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's definitely the case that especially younger people and, and earlier career, mid-career professionals who are from relatively affluent backgrounds or who are part of the knowledge professions or aspire to be, um, maybe feel more pressure as a result of technological changes and things like that to have to have positions or express positions on and the correct positions right. on um on more things uh than was the case in the past because you're you're kind of um there's this kind of identity performance that you have that other people can surveil in different ways and more easily and they can villainize you on a different right. scale and things like that but some things like um so so there's maybe some differences but there are some things that kind of uh, that are more persistent. Um, I think uh, one thing that's interesting when you look at the composition of academia or when you look at the composition of journalism, um, those are places where the ideological and political makeup of these professions has shifted dramatically um, since the over the last few decades. So, for instance, in 1990. Um, Institutions of higher learning still leaned left more than the population in general, but the ratio of liberals to conservatives was something like three to one. Now it's something like seven to one. <laughs> um, and, and among journalists, uh, it used to be the case um, in the 19, uh, I don't want to be super wrong. It's either the 1970s or the 1980s. It's one of those two. I've written about it somewhere, but <laughs> in the 1970s or 80s, one of those two. It was the case that although journalists were more likely to identify with the left than the right, there wasn't actually a big difference between the number of journalists who identified with the right and the amount of the general public that identified with the right. Like the baselines were actually pretty similar. They were fairly representative, a little bit more liberal, but not dramatically more. Today, um, journalists are are like nine to one liberal. Uh, and, um, and that's... Um, way out of step with the public. And that, that's a recent change. So these are the kind of ideological concentration that we see in a lot of institutions of higher learning or journalism or related knowledge economy industries. Um, that is somewhat new um, that you start seeing this kind of uh, homogeneity in this way. I mean, institutions of higher learning, for instance, have long been places actually where certain forms of non-conformance and things like this have been aggressively policed for a long time. I mean, you know, there were all sorts of campaigns to, um, but the, the kind of uh, moral and political monoculture that we have today is a little bit unique historically um, in these institutions. And as far as, uh, as far as what drives it, uh, I think that's an interesting question I mean, I think part of what drives it, honestly, is that there's been a shift in who gets to take part in these professions at all. So right. journalism, for instance, used to have working class journalists um, and people would have journalism jobs who lived all around the country, right? You have local newspapers all around the country. But in a world where media has been consolidated into a small number of these kind of major hubs 
and where you need a college degree, ideally from an elite school in order to become a journalist. And you have to work as an intern in many cases. So working for free in an expensive city in order to get a job at the New York Times, who's gonna be able to do that? Usually people who are themselves from wealthy backgrounds, um, uh, people whose parents are relatively wealthy. Um, and so the kind of class and geographical shift in who gets to become a journalist probably helped contribute to some of the political and ideological shifts that you see in the field as well. And something similar is true in academia. It used to be the case that there were a lot more wealth. So it's interesting, the changes that we've seen in academia, there's kind of a two steps forward, one step back situation <laughs> where um, it was the case where, where on the one hand, the professoriate is more diverse in some respects than it ever has been. Um, and uh, like hiring and promotion is more, ironically, it's way more meritocratic um, and transparent uh, and stuff like this than it was in the past. But there's also been an important change in the class composition of professors. It used to be the case that there were a lot more professors from working class backgrounds. Um, or in any case, it was easier to become a professor from a working class background in some respects than it is today. When you look at the composition of professors, um, they're also in terms of class, well, on all measures, but including and especially in terms of class, they're highly unrepresentative of America as a whole. Um, and, uh, and both in the media and in academia, it's the case where like, when you look at the professoriate, and this wasn't always the case, but today it's the case, that 80% of tenure track jobs go to people who graduated from the top 20% of schools. So 20% of programs do 80% of professor jobs. So if you're graduating from a non-elite school, good luck being a professor, you're going to be an adjunct at best. Well, right. not always, but that's, that's the likelihood. Um, and the same thing in journalism, uh, when you look at the New York Times or the Washington Post, they have a higher share of graduates from Ivy League schools in the New York Times than the Forbes 500 billionaires list. Um, <laughs> and um, so like, there's a strong hiring preference for students of elite schools, especially in flagship journalism outlets. And that radically shifts um, the class composition of journalists. Um, and who right, right, right. And, and it's... The argument used to be like, uh, okay, go, you go work at the, oh, I don't know, like you go work at the at a smaller paper in a in another place, like a rural place, or even you know, like a city like like a Lafayette, Duluth, or something. Yeah, yeah Lafayette, Louisiana, or something that you move, you work your way up, and you can do it. But none of those places exist anymore. None of those institutions yeah. exist. And as we've had seen in the last three weeks here in journalism, a lot of other places that used to be feeders are gone. Yeah. And um, it's it's been interesting. I don't know. You know, I will say that I, as somebody who's been in journalism for a while, uh, you know, and has worked at most of these institutions, I can, I think I can say most of them. I mean, whatever, right? Like most of the most elite institutions that one would associate with themselves. I've never met one person who would have voted for Trump, right? Not one. I've never met some, I've met some people who are anti-woke, but I've never met anyone who would have even voted, I think, for Ron DeSantis, right? Um, I've never met the number of people that I've met who are so, sort of what I call like Subaru socialists, right? Like sort of upper middle <laughs> class, uh, very highly educated people who take on socialists. 
ideas. I include myself in that description. Um, that that that's like maybe sixty percent of people that I know. <laughs> and then within the institutions themselves, I don't know. Like in terms of the Ivy League composition, like calm, like give me a break. You know, like I don't, like I don't actually know that many people who did not go to an elite private school. Right to the point where my friend who went to UC Davis, which is a great public uh, public university in California that is quite selective, that or a friend who went to UC San Diego, which again, if you are in California and you went to a public high school and you are tr- applying to schools, like again, UC San Diego is not easy at this point, right? Um, that they're such outliers that it's like it's like crazy that UC Davis and UC San Diego would be outliers. <laughs> outliers right like um and so that problem i don't really know what to do you know like i i just think that that probably is all quite new and it's only going to make the sort of elite capture problems right that that olafemi taiwo writes about Mm -hmm. even worse right like we can be dissenters towards that but the future is quite clear i think um that we're going to have one newspaper in this country. Um, we're going to have, it's going to be run almost entirely by Ivy League graduates. And that everything else is going to be radiating off of that one thing on uh, that one newspaper. All information is either going to be direct descent to that newspaper or it's going to be supporting that newspaper. And that uh, everything else will be erased, right? And like, that's like a scary vision to me. Right. Like it is a scare. It is it is one in which I think that the by just numbers versions by numbers alone, the power of those institutions will greatly, greatly diminish. Right. Because most people did not go to Ivy League institutions. In fact, most people hate people who did go to those institutions, I think, for sometimes very good reason. Um, and yet I don't know, you know, like what the alternative is just chaos. Right. Like it's just like, you know, five billion different sources of information. Uh, and all of them kind of only existing to stand in opposition to the one establishment institution. I don't know. I just, I have no question there. I'm just saying it. (laughs) I don't know, man. It's insane. I mean, uh, even in academia, the sort of insularity, the political and sort of even geographical insularity in terms of like simply where people are from is staggering. I mean, I was at a conference a year or two ago um, and I was talking to like five or six academics in a circle and they uh, one of them brought up like not knowing any Trump supporters. And then like full, the, all of the other ones were like, oh, yeah, I don't I don't know anyone who voted for Trump. Like I don't even like it was in the context of whether, you know, there was any surprise that Biden won. Um, and I was like, you guys don't know any Trump supporters at all. And they're like, you do. And I was like, yeah, I'm from like, you know, kind of rural Pennsylvania. I, I know a number. Um, and it blew their minds that I that I knew them. And they were it, what was most weird about it was there was a strange kind of pride they seemed to have that they didn't know any. Um, And Trump is terrible, but it it seems so strange to have pride that you're so disconnected from literally half of the country that you don't even know anybody who has a political persuasion, you know, that held by 50% of Americans. Um, And yeah, I don't, I don't, even as again, it's my team that is winning in a certain sense and sort of the left and sort of the progressive set that has, um, that is very well represented. uh, I, it, it makes me feel really uneasy and it, it can't be good that, you know, so many academics are so radically disconnected from huge swaths of America. That seems that seems not good. I don't know. Well, and there's, but like there's Jay, like I don't a, know what to do about it. 
Well, yeah, and there's a lot of social research that shows like when people feel like people, if people have the sense that people like themselves are not represented in um, institutions, uh, if they feel, if they get the sense that institutions do not serve the interests or reflect the values of people like themselves, um, then a normal response that people have is to try to defund or delegitimize or, um, uh, or otherwise um, uh, replace those institutions. Um, this is a thing that you see in a range of institutions worldwide consistently. It's just a general, it seems to be just a general pattern of human behavior. Um, and so to the extent that, you know, there are many academics who seem to lean into the idea that like, fuck those people, basically. <laughs> like, you know, those people, forget about them. They deserve what they have. They deserve to be excluded. They deserve to be marginalized. We don't have to give one iota about that. Right, the deplorables, um, right. The deplorables, yeah. To the extent that they strike that posture, they're basically digging their own grave. Like the, the, yeah. the, the kind of, um, or better said, they're digging the grave for a lot of them. But as you said, the New York Times, Harvard, they're gonna be fine. <laughs> but it's the, it's the professors uh, and the journalists and the other knowledge economy workers at less elite places right. um, that are gonna stand to have their autonomy removed, their jobs eliminated, their authority and impact on society greatly reduced. Um, and so there is, a, there is a type of, this is one of the things that, one of the problems with um, elites in general is that um, because we don't have to pay the consequences. So Nassim Nicholas Taleb has a book called Skin in the Game that's about this point. But because elites often don't have to fa face the consequences of alienating other people, of making bad decisions, it's not our children, you know, going to fight in wars for, for policy making decisions. It's not our communities being hollowed out. It's not, you know, our jobs getting eliminated and things like this. So we, we feel free to approach political decision-making as a sport or as a holy war, or to take these kind of really maximalist um, positions in a way that other people don't, because we don't have, we're not the ones paying the costs if it goes right. wrong. Um, and so a lot of people at Harvard feel perfectly comfortable taking positions and doing things that are bad for higher ed writ large, bad for the respect or, or trust in their professions and things like that. And they don't care. It doesn't affect them much at all. You know, if you're, at, if you're, if you're, at, Claudine Gay got fired from Harvard, she makes $900,000 a year anyway. And she also has a multi-million dollar book that she's likely going to um, be selling in the next, it, you know, it doesn't matter to her. Like no one in, you know, Ibram X. Kendi was found to have committed, you know, the, the, the center that he oversaw was producing basically nothing and you know misappropriating resources and it was a hostile climate and a terrible work environment and what consequences has he faced for that nothing not really like <laughs> you know it doesn't matter um when so you know uh it, it's the people who are most it's the race scholars who are not ibram x kendi but who care about these issues and work on these issues um that are seeing their work being defunded that are seeing their lot their their work being censored um uh because they're actually vulnerable um and so uh and so this is the big problem it's like the people at the elite institutions act in really irresponsible ways and it's other people who have to suffer the consequences of that 
Yeah, I think that's a very good place to end here because I think, uh, you know, I think we've gone through quite a bit of, uh, you know, like why I just find, I've always found you to be an interesting scholar, especially somebody, I, what I appreciate is that you participate in the public discourse um, and you get in there and you fight a little bit. And thanks to all of you for listening to the show. If you'd like to help support us, it's $5 a month at goodbye.substack.com or patreon.com slash ttsgpod. And if you'd like to ever get in touch with me or Tyler, it is time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com. Or you can hit us up on Twitter. I don't really check the Twitter account very much, but it's at ttsgpod. Email's probably the best way. Until next week, uh, be well.